0: Chapter 10 of Mary Ware in Texas. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Maria James. Mary Ware in Texas by Annie Fellows Johnston. Chapter 10 in Joyce's Studio. It was a wild, blustery day in March, two months after Mary's interrupted visit at the ranch. Joyce Ware, sitting before the glowing wood fire in the studio high up on the top floor of a New York apartment house, had never known such a lonesome Sunday. The winds that rattled the casements and sent alternate dashes of rain and snow against the panes had kept her house bound all day. Usually, she was glad to have one of these shut-in days after a busy week when she could sit and do nothing with a clear conscience. Every moan of the wind in the chimney and every glimpse of the snow-whitened roofs below her windows emphasized the luxurious comfort of the big room. She had had a hard week, trying to crowd into it some special orders for Easter cards. A year ago she would not have added them to her regular work, but now she was afraid to turn anything away which might help to swell the size of the check she must send home every month. If the days were not long enough to do the tasks she set for herself at a comfortable pace, she simply worked harder, feverishly if need be, to finish them. She had been practically alone the entire day, for the two members of the household who were at home were staying in their own rooms. Lucy Boyd had a cold, and her devoted little aunt was nursing her with the care of the traditional hen for its one chicken. Mrs. Boyd had not allowed Lucy to leave her room even for her Sunday dinner— but had carried it in to her with her own on a tray. As Miss Henrietta Robbins was spending the weekend in the country, Joyce did not take the trouble to set the table for herself, but ate her own dinner in the little kitchenette. Afterward, to make the day as different as possible from the six others in the week, in which she sat at her easel from morning till night in a long-sleeved gingham apron, she went into her room and put on a dress of her own designing, soft and trailing and of a warm wine-red. Pushing a great sleepy hollow chair close enough to the hearth for the tips of her slippers to rest on the shining brass fender rail, she settled herself among the cushions with a book which she had long been trying to find time to read. The story, like the bleak outdoor world, seemed to accentuate her sense of shelter and comfort, but at the same time it somehow emphasized her loneliness. Now and then, when her eyes grew tired, she paused for a moment to look around her. There were several things which gave her a keen pleasure every time her attention was called to them, which she felt ought to be enough of themselves to dispel her vague depression. The odor of growing mignonette, the sunny yellow of the pot of daffodils on the black teakwood table, the gleam of firelight on the brasses, and the warm shadows it cast on the trailing folds of her wine-red dress that lighting was exactly what she wanted for some drapery folds, which she would be putting on a magazine cover next week. She studied the effect, thinking lazily that if it were not her one day of rest, she would get out palette and brushes, and make a sketch of what she wanted to keep while it was before her. She read for over two hours. When the story came to an unhappy ending, she dropped the book, wishing she had never come across such a tale of misfortune and misunderstanding. It depressed her strangely, and presently, as she sat looking into the fire, the unbroken quiet of the big room gave her an overwhelming sense of loneliness that was like an ache. I'd give anything to walk in and see what they're all doing at home right now, she thought as she stared into the red embers, but I can't even picture them as they really are, because they are no longer living in any place that I ever called home. The thought of their being off in a strange little Texas town that she had never seen made her feel more forlorn and apart than she would have felt could she have imagined them with any of the familiar backgrounds she had once shared with them. They seemed as far away and out of reach as they had been that winter in France, when she used to climb up in Monsieur Greville's pear tree and cry for sheer homesickness. That was years ago, and before the gate of the giant scissors had opened to give her a playmate, but she recalled, as if it were but yesterday, the performance that often took place in the pear tree. She began by repeating that couplet from Snowbound. The dear home faces, whereupon the fitful firelight paled and shone. It was like a charm, for it always brought a blur of tears through which she could see, as in a magic mirror, each home face as she had seen it oftenest in the little brown house in Plainsville. There was her mother, so patient and gentle and tired, bending over the sewing which never came to an end, and Jack, charging home from school like a young whirlwind to do his chores and get out to play. She could see Mary, with her dear earnest little freckled face and beribboned pigtails, always so eager to help, even when she was so small that she had to stand on a soapbox to reach the dishpan such a capable, motherly little Adam she was then, looking after the wants of Holland and the baby untiringly. Despite the ache in her throat, a smile crossed Joyce's face now and then as she went on calling up other scenes. They had had hard work at the wigwam and had felt the pinch of poverty, but she had never known a family who found more to laugh over and enjoy when they looked back over their hard times. But now, the change was more than she could bear to think of, Jack as a hopeless cripple, Mary tied down to the uncongenial work that she had to take up as a breadwinner, when she ought to be free to enjoy the best part of her girlhood as other girls were doing. Tears came into Joyce's eyes as she brooded over the pictures she had conjured up. Then she rose and, trailing into her bedroom, came back with a lap full of letters, all that the family had written her since leaving Lone Rock four months ago. Dropping on the hearthrug, she arranged them in little piles beside her, according to their dates, and beginning at the first, proceeded to read them through in order. They did bring the family nearer, as she had expected them to do, but the later ones brought such a weight of foreboding with their second reading, that presently she buried her face in the cushions of the chair against which she was leaning, and began to cry as she had not cried for nearly a year. Not since the first news of Jack's accident had she given way to such a storm of tears." It was some time before she sobbed herself quiet, and then she still sat with her head in the cushions till she heard the faint buzz of an electric doorbell. It sounded so far away that she thought it was the bell of the adjoining apartment, and gave it no more than a passing thought. So, too, the sound of an opening door, of an umbrella dropped into a hat-rack, of voices seemed to have but a vague connection with her world. Then she was startled by hearing Mrs. Boyd's voice at the portiere, saying, "'Joyce, dear, here is Mr. Tremont to see you.' "'Ah, I knew you were asleep.' "'He rang twice, so I answered the bell.' "'Phil Tremont, pausing between the portiers as Mrs. Boyd slipped back to Lucy, "'caught only a glimpse of Joyce's red dress trailing through the opposite doorway. "'The scattered letters on the rug bore witness to her hurried flight. "'Come on into the fire, Phil,' she called through the partly closed door. "'Poke it up and make yourself at home.' I'll be out in a minute i never dreamed of such joy as a caller on this dreadful day or i should have been sitting up in state waiting to receive you the laughing reply he sent back brightened her spirits as if by magic the next best thing to having one of her own family suddenly appear was the pleasure of seeing the friend who had made one of their home circles so often and so intimately in the old wigwam days which she had just been crying over hastily smoothing her rumpled hair bathing her eyes and fluffing a powder puff over her nose To take away the shine which her tear sopped handkerchief had left on it, she came out to find him standing before the fire, looking down suspiciously at the scattered letters. As he stepped forward with a hearty handclasp, she felt that the keen glance he gave her was a question, and answered as if he had spoken aloud. "'No, I wasn't asleep, as Mrs. Boyd thought. I was just having a good old-fashioned cry, a regular ball. I don't get a chance to indulge in such an orgy of weeps often.' but now the storm is over and it has cleared the atmosphere for another year or so. What is it, Joyce? Bad news from home? Is Jack worse? Phil's voice was so sympathetic, his real concern so evident, that Joyce could not trust herself to answer immediately. She stooped and began to pick up the letters. I am afraid I boasted too soon about the storm being over. You'll have to talk about something else for a while, or I might tune up again. "'All right,' he answered, in a soothing tone, reaching down to help her gather up the letters. "'That suits me anyhow, for I came on purpose to bring you a rare bit of news concerning the Tremont family.' In her present mood, the mere sight of Phil's broad shoulders was a comfort. They might not be able to lift her actual burdens, but she felt their willingness, and his unspoken sympathy steadied her like an outstretched hand.' Now, with the consideration that was one of his most lovable traits, he gave her time to compose herself, by rattling on, in a joking way, about himself. "'I've come a long distance in the rain and snow to tell my news. I've torn myself away from all the wiles of Stuart and Eugenia to keep their only brother with them. I've braved the dangers of greater New York, and defied the elements in order to be the bearer of such important tidings, and you needn't think I'm going to give it to you as if it were any common bit of information.' "'I'll tell you what I'll do. You may have three guesses. If you fail, you pay a forfeit, say, an invitation to supper, with the privilege of my helping get it ready in that tabloid kitchen of yours.' "'That is highly satisfactory,' agreed Joyce, whose voice was under control by this time. She drew her chair a trifle closer to the fire, and, leaning her elbows on her knees, looked into the embers for inspiration.' "'It concerns the Tremont family,' she mused. "'That means all of you. "'Well, it must be that the old tangle about your great-aunt Patricia's holdings in England "'has been settled, and you're coming into some money after all these years.' "'No, guess again.' "'Picking up the long brass tongs, she began to trace pictures on the sooty background "'of the chimney, while she tried to think of a better answer. "'It concerns all of you.' "'Yes.' With his hands in his pockets, Phil walked over to the window and stood looking out over the wide stretch of city roofs below, now almost hidden by the rapidly deepening twilight. He was smiling while he waited, and humming half under his breath, a song that his old English nurse used to sing to him and his sister Elsie. "Made Elsie Roams by Lane and Lee. He had whistled it almost constantly the last few days ling 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 she seems to hear her bride bells ring her bonny bride bells ring he hummed it again when joyce's second guess was wrong while he waited for a third then when it too was wide of the mark and she demanded to be told he began it again but this time he sang it meaningly and loud enough to fill the room with the deep sweet notes a year by the seas, a year by lands, a year since then has died, and Elsie at the altar stands her sailor at her side, while cling-lang-ling their bonny bride-bells gayly ring. Joyce's face grew bright with sudden understanding as he finished, and she cried, Elsie is to be married, is that what you came to tell me? Yes, my littlest, onlyest sister is to be married, immediately after Easter, out in California, in the gold of Ophir Rose Garden you have heard so much about. We are all going, Daddy and Stuart and Eugenia and little Patricia and your obedient servant Pat's pill himself. He left the window, and stretching himself out in the big chair opposite hers, gave her the details that she instantly demanded. Elsie's sailor is a navy surgeon. The wedding is to be in the Rose Garden, because there is where they first met, and there is where Elsie has had all the best times of her life. She has always lived with mother's people, you know, since our home was broken up, and even before mother's death we used to spend our winters there. Yes, daddy opposed the marriage at first, but you know daddy, he'd hardly think an archangel good enough for Elsie." The news had the effect which Phil had foreseen, and Joyce's own affairs retired into the background, while she discussed the matter which was of such vital importance to the whole Tremont family. Later he asked her to name all the things she considered the most desirable and unique as wedding gifts, and they were still adding to the list from which he was to make his choice, when they heard Mrs. Boyd come out into the hall to turn on the light. In the bright firelight they had not noticed how dark it had grown outside. Joyce looked at the clock and sprang up, exclaiming, "'Lucy will be wanting her cream toast, and it's time also for me to pay my forfeit to you. How much of a supper are you going to claim, young man?' "'That depends on how many good leftovers there are in the pantry and ice-box,' said Phil, rising also. "'I'll come and investigate myself, thank you.'" Pinning up the train of her red gown and tying on a big apron, Joyce made quick work of her supper preparations and the long, lonely day ended in a jolly little feast which completely restored her to her usual cheerful outlook on life. Mrs. Boyd joined them, despite the fact that she must leave Lucy to eat alone in order to do so. It was always a red letter day in her drab existence when Phil Tremont came into it. She was a literal little body that she never joked herself. She was mentally incapable of the repartee that always flew back and forth across the table when Phil was a guest." but she considered his tamest sallies as positively brilliant. When she went back to Lucy, she had enough material to furnish conversation all the rest of the evening. "'Now,' said Phil, when he and Joyce were back in the studio again before the fire, "'I don't want to upset your equanimity, but if you can talk about it calmly, "'I'd like to hear exactly how things are going with Jack and Aunt Emily and that little brick of a Mary. "'I had one letter from Jack the first of the winter,' and I've had the casual reports you've given me at long intervals, but I've no adequate idea of their whereabouts or their present sayings and doings. Suppose I read you some of Mary's letters, proposed Joyce. I've been surprised at the gift she's developed lately for describing her surroundings. Really, she's done some first-class word pictures. In answer to his pleased assent, Joyce turned over the letters till she came to the first one that Mary had written from Bower. It was written on pieces of a paper sugar sack while she was getting supper, explained Joyce, but you can fairly see the little town spread out between the spire of St. Peter's and the tower of the Holy Angels Academy, with the big windmills in between and the new moon low on the horizon. Phil, lounging back in the big chair, sat with a smile on his face as he listened to Mary's account of the rector's call while she was perched up on the windmill but when Joyce reached the closing paragraph about its being a good old world after all, and her belief in Grandmother Ware's verse that the crooked should be made straight and the rough places smooth, a very tender light shone in his keen eyes. He said in a low voice, "'The dear little vicar, she's game to the core.'" Urged to read more, Joyce went on, sometimes choosing only an extract here and there, sometimes reading an entire letter till he had heard all about her visit to Gay, her first experience at a military hop, their brave attempt to make a Merry Christmas among strangers, and finally her experience with the Mallory children, because of their desperate need of money. Don't skip, insisted Phil, still laughing over her account of her day of rest at the Barnaby Ranch, when the peacock lost its tail. The next one isn't funny, replied Joyce, but it is especially interesting to me because it shows how Mary is growing up. She hunted through the disordered pile until she found one dated two months ago. The night after I brought Brad and Sister back from the ranch, I lay awake for hours trying to think what to do next to find the vulnerable spot in my Tufel. I couldn't think of a thing, but decided to begin telling them Kipling's jungle stories instead of any more fairy tales and to try Mrs. Barnaby's suggestion of making them responsible for their own entertainment part of the time. Oh, this isn't the one I thought, exclaimed Joyce. It goes on to tell about the latest news from Holland instead of the children. Here's the one I wanted, written two weeks later. Hail, Columbia, happy land! I've found the open sesame thanks to Kipling, and in a way I little expected. The children showed a breathless interest in the jungle stories from the start, and began dramatizing them of their own accord. They have thrown themselves into the play with a zest which nothing of my proposing has ever called out. For two weeks I have been Old Baloo, the brown bear, and Father Wolf by turns. There are two little hairless man-cubs in our version, however, for Moglina divides honors with Mowgli. Sister says she has chosen the name of Moglina for keeps, and i sincerely hope she has if what mr sammy bradford said about names having a moral effect on her is true we have our council rock up on the high hill back of saint peter's where Mellis sometimes plays the part of the black panther we no longer greet each other with good morning it is good hunting now and when we part it is with the benediction jungle favor go with thee you remember baloo taught the wood and water laws to mowgli how to tell a rotten branch from a sound one, how to speak politely to the wild bees when he came upon a hive of them, etc. But more than all, he taught the master words of the jungle that turned every bird, beast, and snake into a friend. It is simply amazing to me the way they seemed to be charmed by that idea, and it is strange that such utterly lawless children should be not only willing but eager to abide by the rules laid down for animals. It does my soul good to hear Brud, who has never obeyed anyone, gravely declaim, Now these are the laws of the jungle, and many and mighty are they, but the head and the hoof of the law, and the haunch and the hump is obey. Or to hear saucy little sister in the role of Moglina repeating Ka's words to Uncle August, a brave heart and a courteous tongue, they will carry thee far into the jungle, manling. It was Uncle August, bless his old brown body, who helped me to make my first personal application of the play. I had just heard of their latest prank downtown. Sad to say, the more angelic they are as little wolves, the more annoying they are when they return to the man pack. They had dropped a live garter snake, a good sized one through the slit of the package-box, and the postmistress had picked it up with a bundle of newspapers. She was so frightened that she yelled like a Comanche, and then had a nervous chill that lasted for a quarter of an hour. That same day they filled all the keyholes of the private letter-boxes with chewing-gum, as far up as they could reach, and everybody who had to stop and pry it out was so cross." I didn't say anything to them about it till after they had told me about Uncle August's chasing the calves out of Mrs. Williams's garden, and how she had petted and praised him for it. We talked a few minutes about the way Uncle August is beloved by everybody who knows him, and how even strangers on the street stop to pat his head or say something kind about him. It's because he keeps every law of the jungle for dogs, I told them, and then I said, quite mercilessly, but the whole town looks on you two children as banderlogs, mere senseless monkey-folks, outcasts who have no leaders and no laws. Really, it hurt them dreadfully, and I felt almost cruel for saying it. I could see that the shot told when I reminded them how they had been turned out of the hotel and chased out of every store in town. I told them that people said ugly things about them behind their backs, just as Ka and Baloo did about the silly grey apes who threw dirt and sticks and made mischief wherever they went. That was the climax. They both threw themselves across my lap and began to cry, protesting that they were not banderlogs. They didn't want people to call them that. I think my good angel must have inspired me to make the little sermon I gave them then, for I certainly had never thought of the analogy before how the same thing that is true in the jungle holds good in the man-world that we must learn the master words for each person we meet so that every heart will understand when we call out we be of one blood ye and i that just as the elephants and kites and snakes became friendly to mowgli as soon as he learned the master words of their speech so miss edna and the postmistress and old mr sammy would be friendly to them when they showed that they not only had brave hearts which scorned to play little mean silly tricks but courteous tongues as well the amazing part of it is that they understood me perfectly, and right then and there had a sort of spiritual awakening to the fact that they really are of one blood, with these people they have been tormenting. It is pathetic to watch how hard they have been trying ever since, to convince people that they are not bander-logs, but are sensible children, willing to be governed by laws that they never understood before. Now, at parting, they insist on my repeating all the verse— wood and water wind and tree wisdom strength and courtesy jungle favor go with thee they seem to believe that it verily holds some sort of hoodoo spell which will armor them with magic power to make friends already sister has made peace with the postmistress by the gift of a crude little willow basket of her own weaving filled with wild flowers it met with such a gracious reception to principally to private explanation beforehand that sister fairly squirmed with the blessedness of giving her first real experience of that sort Broad used his hatchet to split a pine-box into kindling and presented the same tied in neat bundles to mrs williams her surprise and voluble thanks also solicited beforehand were so gratifying that brudd came home so satisfied with the new application of the game that he burns to play it with everyone in bower proving with actions if not words that he has a right to say we be of one blood ye and i and that he is not a bander-log as joyce slipped the letter back into its envelope phil leaned forward to put another log on the fire saying as he did so good for mary she always manages to find some way out and it is always a way no one else would think of but somehow i can't quite place her in these letters She's the same little bunch of energy that I've always known, and yet there's a difference. I can't quite make out what. "'She's growing up, I tell you,' answered Joyce. "'That's what makes the difference. Listen to this one. Yesterday, being Valentine's Day, we had a picnic at the Council Rock. The hill rises straight up from the public road just back of the Mallory Cottage in St. Peter's. There is a roundabout road to the top, leading in from a back lane, which is easy to climb, But, of course, the children chose the steep trail starting near their gate. Nothing but a goat could walk up it with perfect ease and safety. Once at the top, the view is lovely. You can see over half the county and look right down into the chimneys of the town. The whole hilltop is covered with wildflowers, strange, beautiful things I have never seen before. So many exquisite colors you'd think a rainbow had been broken to bits and scattered over the ground. At one o'clock we started out of the Mallory Gate, the most grotesque procession that ever went down the Pike of Bower. You see, we would dropped the jungle game for the day, and they were doing St. Valentine honor. I went first, in my oldest dress, on account of the climb, my Mexican hat on my head, my alarm clock, as usual, in one hand, and a thermos bottle in the other. I was taking some boiling water along to make them tea, as a great treat. They don't like it particularly, but they wanted to use a little Japanese tea set that had just been sent to them. Sister, fired by some of my descriptions of valentine costumes, had elected to attend the picnic as the queen of hearts, and had dressed herself for the part with the assistance of Melis. She looked perfectly ridiculous, spotted all over with turkey red calico hearts. They were sewed on her dress, her hat, and even her black stockings. She was as badly broken out with them as a measles patient would have been with a red rash. Brud wouldn't let her dyke him out in the same way. She wanted him to go as Cupid. He consented to let her call him Cupid, and he carried a bow and arrow and wore some of the trimmings, but he wore them in his own way. The white turkey wings, which she tried to attach to his shoulder blades, he wore bound to his brow like an Indian chieftain's war bonnet. Long-suffering Uncle August, frisked about in a most remarkable costume. I think it must have been made of the top section of Brud's pajamas, with the sleeves pulled up over his front paws and buttoned in the back. It was sprinkled with big hearts, some blue and some yellow. But, funny as they looked, Mellis was the comic valentine of the occasion. The front of her was covered with an old lace window-curtain. Across her bosom, carefully fastened with a gilt paper arrow, was the lithographed picture of a big red heart, as fat and red and shiny as a ripe tomato. She carried the lunch basket. I must confess it staggered me a trifle when the procession came out to meet me, but they were so pleased with themselves I hadn't the heart to suggest a single change. I led on, hoping that we wouldn't meet anyone. Well we hadn't gone a hundred paces till we heard hoofbeats, and a solitary horseman came riding along behind us. Broad looked back, and then piped up in his shrill little voice. Oh, look, Miss Mary, look at the soldier man coming. Naturally, I glanced back, and my blood fairly ran cold, for there, riding along with a broad grin on his face at the sight of our ridiculous turnout, was Lieutenant Boglin. I was so amazed at seeing him that I just stood still in the road and stared, feeling my face get redder and redder. Somehow I had no power to move. He didn't recognize me till he was opposite us, but the instant he did he was off his horse and coming up to shake hands and I was trying to account for our appearance. It seems he had been with the troops up at Leon Springs for target practice and was taking a day off while they were breaking camp he had been commissioned to look at a polo pony somebody had for sale in bower and thought while he was about it he would call and see the ware family after he had had dinner at the hotel he was on his way there well there i was i couldn't ask him to go on such a babified lark as our valentine picnic i couldn't leave the children and take him over home because my time is mrs mallory's even if she had excused me the children would have raised an unstoppable howl and probably would have followed us. They are making grand strides in the courtesy business, but they are still far from being models of propriety. When I had explained to the best of my ability, I told him I would be through at five, and asked him to wait and take supper with us. I could see that he was inwardly convulsed, and I do believe it was because we all looked so ridiculous, and he wanted to see the show a second time, that he accepted my invitation with alacrity as soon as he started on to the williams house i stopped under a tree and wrote a scrawl to mamma on the margin of the newspaper that was spread on top of the lunch basket then i gave malice a dime to run over home with it so that the family needn't be taken by surprise if Bogie happened to get there before i did But it seems that he forgot the directions I gave him for finding the house, and about ten minutes to five, as the children and Malice were finishing the lunch which was spread out on the council rock, he came climbing up the side of the hill. The children had been angelic before his arrival, and they were good after he came, except I can't explain it, there was something almost impish in the way they sat and watched us, listening to everything we said, as if they were committing it to memory to repeat afterward. Even Uncle August, in his heart-covered pajamas, squatted solemnly on the rock beside them and seemed to be stowing away something to remember. The lieutenant couldn't glance in their direction without laughing out loud, they looked so utterly comical, so he turned his back on them and began to admire the view, which certainly was magnificent. As the sun began to go down, the wind came up, and the veil I had tied around my hat got loose and streamed out like a comet's tail. I couldn't tie it down, and I couldn't find a pin to fasten it, and the first thing I knew he had taken one of those fancy bronze pins from the collar of his uniform, those crossed guns that officers wear, you know, and he gave me that to fasten my veil with. Now, there was nothing remarkable in that. Gay and Roberta have whole rows of such pins that different officers have given them, but Sister pointed her finger at me and shrilled out like Katie did, as if they had been discussing the subject before. "'No, sir, brud, you can't fool me. He is Miss Ree's Valentine. He's her beau.' Unless you could have heard the elfish way she said it, you couldn't understand why it should have embarrassed me so dreadfully. My face felt as hot as a fiery furnace." He sort of smiled and pretended not to hear, and I couldn't think of a word to break the awful pause. But just then, the alarm clock, hanging on a bush behind us, went off with a wang and a clutter that sent us both springing to our feet. They had finished their lunch by that time, so I helped Mellis hustle the dishes into the basket and headed the party for home as soon as possible. You can imagine the deep breath of thankfulness I drew when I finally left them at their own gate. "'but I drew it too soon. "'I should have waited until we were out of earshot. "'For as they went racing up the path to meet their mother, "'we could hear them shrieking to her "'about Miss Mary's valentine bow, "'who gave her two teeny-weeny guns to pin her veil with. "'The wind wasn't blowing so hard down where we were then, "'so as we went along I said in a careless sort of way, "'Oh, lest we forget, I'll return this now.' and started to take it out of my veil but he only laughed and said with such a mischievous glance no keep it miss mary lest you forget your valentine fortunately it was one of jack's good days and he was able to be out in the sitting-room and the two took to each other at once you know nobody can give people quite such a gentle gracious reception as mamma can and much as I had dreaded taking him into such a barely-furnished little house, and serving him from our motley collection of dishes, I didn't mind it at all after she had made him welcome. Such things don't matter so much when you've a family you can be proud of. We had a delicious supper, and he ate and ate, and said nothing had tasted so good since he left home years ago to enlist. He stayed till ten o'clock, and then went down to the livery stable to get his horse and ride back to camp by moonlight. We sat up for nearly an hour after he left, comparing notes on how we had enjoyed the evening, and talking over all he had said. Jack said it was like coming across a well in a thirsty desert to meet a fellow like that. And Mamma said she was sure he had enjoyed his little taste of simple home life quite as much as we had enjoyed having him. He quite captivated her, especially when he asked permission to come again. Norman was so impressed that he has been talking ever since about the advantages of being an army man. As for me, I found him lots more interesting than he was the night of the hop, although I must say I'll always remember him as a sort of guardian angel that night for being so kind and saving me from being a wallflower. There was a peculiar expression on Phil's face as Joy laid down that letter. "'Do you know,' he said gravely, "'I feel as though I'd been seeing the little vicar grow up right under my very eyes. "'I'd never before thought of her as being old enough to have affairs, but this one seems to give promise of blossoming into one. "'Of course, it's what one might naturally expect, but somehow I can't quite get used to the idea, and—' "'He did not finish the sentence aloud.' but as he scowled into the fire, he added to himself, I don't like it. End of chapter 10